Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. I wonder if any of you have ever experienced the finding out that something wasn't quite as true or quite as accurate as you thought it was in something that you bought. Uh, that when you try and you buy a knockoff version of something only afterwards to find out you didn't quite get what you're hoping for or you've seen all those commercials where that's, but wait, there's more and this item does this, 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 and this. And you get sucked into buying it only to find out it does not do this, 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 and this. I had this experience when I was in high school. And we were on a missions trip to Argentina. And in one of our free afternoons, we went around and we were exploring some of the shops in the big city where we were at. And to our group's amazement, we found so many great things that were only a fraction of the cost that they would cost here in the States. That we found nice shoes, nice clothes, movies, electronics, anything we could dream about. And so we walked into one shop where we found one very kind shopkeeper who convinced us of our need to buy certain name brand shoes and how he would even make it a better deal by giving us a buy one, get one on all of the shoes. And so, of course, me and my buddies were like, we're sold. We'll take them all. And so we purchased all of these shoes, remember, for a fraction of the cost they would be here. And it wasn't only until later that evening when we get back to the missionary's home where we were showing off our prized treasures that we got that we realized that in most cases the shoes in the boxes were different sizes from one another that the soles of them might as well have been made of ripped up cereal boxes. And the very bottom of them was not rubber, but a plastic that was so slick that walking on tile, you might as well have been walking on ice. That we had thought we had gotten these real, true shoes. Instead, we got a bunch of fakes that left us disappointed, distraught, and disheartened. And this morning in our text, we're going to be introduced to several different characters who all have experiences with either the true Jesus or an image of the fake Jesus in their mind. What we'll see this morning is that a real experience with the true word brings about change and fuels missions. So before we get to our text, I want to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which acts as a launching point for us, that it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That this word we read about in the Gospel of John is Jesus. In an experience with the real Jesus, 
pierces the darkness of our hearts and causes dead souls to be brought to life. And so with that, let us turn to Acts chapter 18. I will ask that you will stand as you are able for the reading of the God's word. And we'll read Acts 18 starting in verse 24 all the way through verse number 20 of Acts 19. This is what the word says. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism with repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the halls of Tenaris. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even when the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them, and then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
And they counted the value of all of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you again and ask for your help this morning to understand the text before us, to apply it to our lives, that through our time here this morning, that the Spirit would work in our hearts and change us to be more like Jesus. We pray that you would remove any distractions that might be in our mind from perhaps what might have been a busy or hard week, that we might focus on the text and that we would be refreshed by the good news of Jesus. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus as their Lord, that they would come to know him, that you would do a work in their hearts and open their minds to the truths of the scriptures. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. You may be seated. We see first in this text an interaction with the true word, meaning Jesus, that we write about in John, brings excitement. This new character walks onto the scene. His name is Apollos, who, from what we read from the scriptures, is a native of Alexandria, that he is a well-educated man who is competent in the scriptures, meaning that he knew the Old Testament very, very well, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So someone at some point had told him about Jesus, and it says that he spoke and taught accurately the ways of the Lord, that he had some experience that drew him to Jesus, and he felt compelled, some sort of excitement to tell other people about Jesus, that he was gifted in this way in the teaching, and he fervently taught in spirit. Now, there are some who, when looking at this text, they are a little hesitant to label Apollos a believer because it says that he knew only John's baptism versus he knew the baptism of Jesus. And nevertheless, there is something deficient in his understanding that as he is excitedly preaching and teaching and telling other people about Jesus that Aquila and Priscilla, who we learned about last week, come and they hear his teaching, and they recognize his gifting, his ability, and they see that something is missing in what he is communicating, that perhaps it is his understanding about John's baptism and that Jesus has come and given a new baptism, a baptism of the Spirit for them. I think it should be noted that Priscilla and Aquila give us a great model for discipleship in the way that they come alongside Apollos and explain to him the word of God more accurately. That they see his gifting, his ability, his skill, the message he's communicating, and they intentionally interject themselves into his life that they weren't willing to let someone of a high capacity for teaching to continue not teaching truthfully 
that they say, let us help you, let us point you more accurately to the scriptures, that they come alongside him that he might more faithfully understand and live out the truths of scripture. But at the same time, Apollos was willing to listen to them. And that he heard what they said, and he listened to them and changed a pattern in his life. And I think for us, this is how we should think about modeling our Christian walk. That there should be Priscilla's and Aquila's in our life, older, mature saints who are speaking truth into us, and that we would listen to them, that we might more accurately follow Jesus. That when a saint comes to us and says, hey, let me share with you what I've learned in the scriptures. I think this would be a help to you. That we don't shove them off, that we don't listen to them, but we listen to what they have to say so that we can more faithfully follow after Jesus. But at the same time, we should also have an Apollos in our life that we are speaking into. That as we are discipled and we grow to be more like Jesus, that we excitedly tell other Christians about Jesus to help them walk more along. That the Christian life is not one of isolation, but we need other believers in our lives speaking truth to us because sometimes we have blind spots. And so nevertheless, whether or not Apollos was a Christian before or after talking to Priscilla and Aquila, that there is an excitement about him to continue proclaiming Jesus. That he comes to them and says, not only am I excited to teach here in Ephesus, but I actually want to go and tell more people about Jesus. So he has this excitement to continue proclaiming Jesus. He wants to go, and it says that they encourage him to go. They encouraged him and they wrote a letter to the disciples of where he's going to welcome him, to bring him into the congregation that he might greatly help them. And he does, that the text says, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. That he came with excitement to proclaim the message of Jesus, which is one of grace that God sent Jesus to come to earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to rise again for our sins, that the message of the gospel is one of joy-filled grace. And he comes and he shares that with them. He is excited to, as we should be excited to, as recipients of those who have received God's grace and mercy, we should excitedly tell other people about God's grace that is available to them. And then it says, not only did he go and tell them, but he also defended the truths of the scriptures. It says in verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus, that, hey, this long-awaited Messiah that you have read about and sung about and been taught about, he has come, and I'm going to tell you about it, that he had this certain excitement about Jesus, that Apollos, with his real interaction with the true word, could not help but tell other people and proclaim Jesus. And so that's 
close of Act 1, and then we transition to now the Apostle Paul comes to that same city that Apollos was in, and we see an interaction with the true word brings empowerment, that as the Apostle Paul comes in, the text says that he is introduced to some disciples of John, or as Alistair Begg calls them, 12 almost Christians. We don't know much about these disciples of John the Baptist, but there's something about them that causes Paul to start asking them some important spiritual questions. Perhaps Paul observed something in their behavior, their demeanor, that prompted him to ask some questions about whether or not they had had an interaction with the true Jesus. And it might seem odd that Paul asked a question about their faith in regards to the Holy Spirit. But we must remember that one of the true indicators of a person's faith is not religious work, not correct theological wording, not servant-heartedness, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a key indicator of one's faith. That Paul goes on in Romans 8, 9 to say, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That not all who profess to be Christians are truly followers of Jesus. That regardless of the language they use, the Christian activities that they participate in, that these almost Christians here in the text and in our lives today try their best struggling to do for themselves what God has done in his grace and already accomplished and paid the price for our sins. And so whatever it is that Paul recognizes in these disciples, he preaches Christ to them. And after a discussion about the Holy Spirit and baptism and the real Jesus, are they then baptized into the name of Jesus? And Paul then lays hands on them, and we experience some sort of mini-Pentecost that we experienced in the beginning of the book of Acts with them speaking in tongues and prophesying. We should note that it's often religious people, like these disciples pre-conversion, that they do not believe in Jesus. That those who attend Christian religious events, but do not have a true understanding of the gospel and who show no signs of a heart that has been changed by Jesus, that they serve as an example of those who are not true followers of Jesus. This is why we must explain and preach and proclaim the true gospel to all religious types because even those who are religious still need Jesus. That they can do all the right works, but that does not mean they are actually a follower of Jesus. John Wesley, a famous missionary and evangelistic preacher, tells of his conversion story. That he was the son of a minister, that he attended Oxford, that he became a double professor of Greek and logic at Lincoln College, that he served as his father's assistant, that he was ordained by the church, that John Wesley left Oxford to become a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia. And as he goes, and after failing in his work among them, he was forced to return to England, where he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And by God's grace in America, he encountered some Moravians, 
a Christian group that emphasized Bible reading, prayer, and worship, that their spiritual vitality had a tremendous impact on him, and he sought out one of their leaders after being convinced of his own unbelief. Wesley wrote in his journal on May 24, 1738, this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society, a gathering in the Alder Street, Aldergate Street, where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the hearts through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That although he had gone to be a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia, it was there that he found Jesus, that he was doing all of the right religious acts, but it wasn't until he he experienced the gospel and had a change of heart that something changed inside of him, that a real interaction with Jesus brings about a change inside all of us. And so as we look back at the text, we have to ask, what do we do with the speaking in tongues and prophesying after believing? These signs we are seeing here in the text are visible and public indicators that these disciples now have believed the gospel and are now children of God and are indwelt with the Spirit. But we should know that this is not a universal pattern in the book of Acts, that everyone who experiences salvation experiences such manifestations that as we've read through the book of Acts, that not everyone who comes to faith has this sort of miraculous gifting of prophesying and speaking in tongues. But... At the same time, every believer who believes in the true Jesus experiences the same empowerment of the Spirit. That Jesus promised in John 16 that he would send a helper who would be a guide and comforter and empower for all disciples of Jesus. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 5-6, Now there are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That all of those who are true followers of Jesus are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and therefore empowered with the gifts of the Spirit for the benefit of the church in the expanding of God's kingdom. That saints, if you are a follower of Jesus, I can tell you the Spirit has given you special gifting to serve the church and to expand God's kingdom. That God gives every need through gifting of his people. That when there are needs that arises in the church, that God gifts individuals to fill those needs, to use their gifting to benefit the church. And those giftings manifest themselves in different ways, that it's not always speaking in tongues or prophesying, 
that it could be teaching or mercy or encouragement or evangelism, that the list goes on, that God gives each of us gifts to serve the church. But what that also means is that if we are not using the giftings that God has given us to serve the church, that the church is actually hurting. Because God supplies all the needs of the church through his saints. And so we should ask ourselves, am I using my giftings to serve the church? Or am I content sitting back? Because interactions with the true Jesus brings about an empowerment to serve his church so that the church can preach the gospel and expand God's kingdom by proclaiming that gospel to lost individuals. That he gives the gifts that we need to fulfill the needs in the church. And as Paul is there and they experience, like I said, this mini Pentecost, that he then goes about his typical pattern for mission work. That he goes to the synagogue, as we've talked about, that this is what Paul does. He goes to a new city, he goes to the synagogue, and he starts preaching about Jesus and says, hey, let me tell you about the Jesus that you've long awaited for. And as he heads to the synagogue, and probably much to his surprise, he's allowed to preach for three months before facing opposition. And we've spent much time in our study of the book of Acts that we can expect when the gospel is proclaimed that there is going to be opposition. But that we should not lose heart because God is sovereign and can even work through opposition to bring about heart change. And we should notice that Paul, he takes the believers and he moves to a new location in order to continue to point them towards the true word. And as a result, all the residents of Asia, both Jew and Greek, hear the word of the Lord. That interactions with the true words brings movement. That Paul, when they start speaking evil about the way, meaning following after Jesus, that he takes all of those believers and he says, hey, we're going to go. And Paul spends intentional time discipling them. That he goes and he stays in a place longer than he has stayed anywhere else for two years and is daily teaching those people who are believers about Jesus. That he, it says in verse 10 that this continued for two years so that all the residents heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and and Greeks. That yet again, I think this models well for us that when we have a true interaction with Jesus, we should desire to disciple other people, and an expectation of discipleship should be evangelism. That as Paul is teaching those who are hearing the truths about Scripture, he's equipping them to go and use their giftings to share the gospel with others. That it says in the text that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I do not know what the population is at the time, whether or not this is an exaggeration, but I have to believe that this is the word of God. And it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That as Paul is engaging in intentional discipleship, of those individuals, he's not saying, take the truths of Jesus and keep them to yourself. He's saying, take the truths of Jesus and go tell other people about it. 
that when real discipleship is happening, an expectation should be evangelism, that the word of God, as it's faithfully preached, that hearts are changed and people come to know Jesus. That we should be asking ourselves, does our discipleship lead towards evangelism? Does everything from our children's ministry to our Sunday school classes to our life groups to the preaching of God's word on Sunday, does it cause us to be inward focused about what the gospel has only done for me? Or does it cause us to think, think about what the gospel has done for me. I cannot help but tell other people about it that there will be a movement of the Spirit in people's hearts as they for two years dedicated themselves towards discipleship and evangelism to see a movement of God. And I think it's important to know that it's God who is doing these miraculous things, that yes, as they are faithfully following after Jesus and they are telling people about it, it doesn't say that everyone in all of Asia believed, but all of Asia heard that they are relying on God to do a work in individuals' hearts to change them to be followers of Jesus. But the other part of that is we have to be faithful in our call to go and tell other people about it. That we cannot be content to someone else is going to go and tell them about Jesus. Because if we believe that God is sovereign, it means that he has put certain individuals in our lives for a specific purpose. And I have to believe that some of those individuals are so that we will share the gospel and live faithfully for Jesus with them. And so as this movement is going about, words about the movement start to spread. And we start to enter this really unique thing in verse 11 and 12 where it reads, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even... Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That these, this note here, one, is about God doing miraculous things here, not Paul saying, take my handkerchief, take my apron. That this is a description of a historical event, not a prescription of an activity that we should seek to mimic today that you should not go down to the pastor's offices and say, there's an old tissue, I'm going to go take this to someone sick and they're going to be healed. But it should be noted that the emphasis is placed on God doing the work by the hands of Paul. That our God is so powerful that he can even work through old rags and aprons to bring about healing and the casting out of demons. That if God is that powerful, there is nothing that he cannot do. But as we move, we meet some new people where we'll see that an interaction with the true word brings about abandonment. So in verses 13 through 17, you might have been thinking this is a really weird story going on. That these seven sons of Sceva, which is obviously the coolest rock band at the time, they are itinerant exorcists. Meaning they are traveling demon hunters. Now, they had either witnessed the amazing power of God working through Paul, or they had had heard stories about Paul, that he had been performing these miracles, and that they saw this as a unique opportunity. And they said, now we can add a new tool to our arsenal, 
that we can use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. So we don't know tons about these guys apart from their dad's name is Sceva and he's a high priest and they're his sons. Whether or not they were commissioned to do this work or they just thought it was really cool to try and cast out demons. And so they go and they find a man possessed with an evil spirit and they say, come out by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And so the seven sons of Sceva, their best attempt to cast out a demon is even further than the power of Jesus than they could imagine. That if you look at the text, that it's not come out by the name of Jesus, that it's come out by the power of Jesus that Paul preaches, that they've even further removed themselves from Jesus by saying, hey, it's the one that Paul preaches in case there's any confusion about it. That you think if they were going to cast spells and incantations that they could at least get it right and use the name of Jesus. And then we see this supernatural interaction with the demon-possessed man. That he scoffs and he laughs at the sons of Sceva. And he taunts them by saying, Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you guys? And then things go from bad to worse for these sons. That it says the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, if there's any question about who won this encounter, Pastor Matt Chandler puts it this way. He says, if when the fight starts, you were wearing pants, and when it was over, you were no longer wearing pants, you lost. So as humorous as this text might be, And it is. It is quite humorous, and we should laugh at it. We should ask, what is the underlying truth that is here in this text? In Jewish culture, being physically exposed was the most humiliating thing that could happen to someone. And I don't think that's just in Jewish culture. I think it's in all cultures. That Al Mohler points out this, that at their physical exposing by the demon, it was also a symbol of their spiritual exposing. That they wanted all the power of the true word, Jesus, but without any commitment, without any change, they wanted to keep things the same. They wanted all the power and none of the responsibility. And so you can imagine that as the news of the seven streakers of Sceva spreads like wildfire through the town as everyone now is aware of what has happened that the people of Ephesus recognize the lack of power that the exorcists had. That this is a town that is filled with witchcraft and magic and wizardry and all these things but now they come to see that the power that they thought was in these individuals does not exist. But that true power comes from the true word, and it's in the name of Jesus. And so the text moves that after the exposing of these fake, phony followers of Jesus, that we see this vivid picture of confession and repentance. And Luke says that the believers were confessing and disclosing their practices. Now, we shouldn't be shocked 
that the believers were burning their books, their books of magic and witchcraft, that after all, salvation leads to a procession of growth, that there's progress that happens, that a work of sanctification by the Spirit shapes us and changes us into the image of Christ, that after believing in Jesus, then there's often practices and ideas that we as believers realize that we must abandon as we come to know more and more about Jesus. That not only does following after Jesus bring about heart change, it brings about habit change. That we should take note that they don't just give their books away or sell them. That it says that they gathered them all together and they destroy them. That this is a costly thing to do. Considering the total expense of all those burned books and volumes, that commentators suggest that the 50,000 pieces of silver that somehow someone managed to get a count of the cost of those books, that to their best guess cost millions of dollars. And yet these believers wanted a radical break with the ungodly things that were in their lives, that the Spirit of God produced a deep change in their hearts, that they wanted to get rid of and get as far away from their old sinful practices as they could so that they could be better followers of Jesus. I have to imagine that in their minds, selling of these volumes would have only spread the poison that had contaminated them before. But as Christ followers, we are called to spread the good news instead. That they were willing to abandon their old way of life because of the experience they had had with Jesus, a heart change, and said that Jesus is so much better than what we were doing. That Jesus is so much better than this magic. That Jesus is so much better that it is worth giving up something that cost us money in order to follow after him faithfully. That these Ephesian believers had a new affection and an abandonment of their former ways. That they had a new love for Jesus and their actions shouted that the true words of Christ were sweeter, were far more valuable to them than any God, any power, any false source of trust, or any amount of money. That they said following Jesus is so much better that they were willing to abandon the old comforts of their lifestyle. But we must not forget the warning that we see in Revelation chapter 2 when charges are brought against the church at Ephesus, that we read in Revelation 2.4, it says this, But I have this against you, this is Jesus speaking, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That there is a warning in here. That we may begin with passionate adoration of Jesus, but we must guard our hearts to not grow cold in our love for our Savior. That we should continue to cultivate our love for Christ 
for him by confessing our sins, forsaking our ungodly practices, abandoning a love for the world, and seek the true word and his words. Remember that Jesus is our greatest good and our highest joy. That when we sin, there should be a conviction in our heart that we have yet again broken God's law. That that's what we see these believers doing, that they are confessing and repenting of their sins. That the Christian life is not one of perfection, that whether you were saved yesterday or whether you've been saved for 60 years, that there is still sin that lives within your heart that we must continually fight against. But a way that we abandon our old selves to follow after Christ is confessing, repenting of our sins, and turning back to Christ. And remembering the truths of the gospel that says, you, you are safe in Christ to bring your sins, to bring your confession, to bring your, con- con- bring your confession, bring your repentance, and God stands there willing, able, ready to offer you forgiveness. But you have to repent of your sins. He says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, meaning those of you with your sins, with your troubles, with your hardships, come to me and I will make your yoke light. I will give you comfort and peace that as we desire to follow after Jesus, we have to abandon self-comfort. We have to abandon the love of this world. We have to abandon the things that draw our hearts away from God and instead put ourselves in a place where we are finding ourselves drawing to new affections in Christ. That we reject all rivals of Christ and revere Christ who loved us so much that he gave himself for us and died on the cross for our sins. That we would never grow tired of being reminded of the gospel. That God loved you and me so much that he sent Jesus to come to live a perfect life, to never do anything wrong, to heal and care for people and point them towards truth. And yet, the world who Jesus came to love killed him on the cross in God's sovereign plan, but Jesus did not stay dead and rose again to offer us freedom from our sins. That God loved you and he loved me so much that Jesus died on the cross for us. Friends, we must never grow tired of hearing that good news. And when we hear that news, it should stir up affections in our hearts that draw us closer to Christ and say, you know what? The things of this world are nothing compared to Jesus. The things that I can gain in the world by living sinfully are nothing compared to Jesus. That Jesus has so radically changed our hearts and our minds and our thoughts that we should instead reject sin and say, Jesus is better. Jesus is sweeter. He's such a better comfort than anything in this world. And we should go to him and turn to him because we still make mistakes. We still mess up. But it doesn't mean that he turns his back on us. Instead, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. 
and I will forgive you because I am the good shepherd who is stronger, more loving, and wiser than you, and I will lead you back to God.